if we are to impact our generation for Jesus Christ, and let me just ask you real quick, is that what you want to do? No, seriously, it's okay. You can say something to me here. It's pretty, I'm informal. Is that what you want to do? Would you like to impact your generation for Jesus Christ? I would. I know you would. That's why you're here. That's why you're gathered here today. But if we're going to do that, if we're going to impact our generation for the gospel of Jesus Christ, God's going to do it through men and women who, who cannot be bought, who, whose word is their bond, who put character above wealth, who are larger than their jobs and their hobbies, who do not hesitate to take chances for the kingdom of God, who will be honest in small things as well as great things, and who will make no compromise with wrong. You see, many people say that they want to follow Jesus Christ. But when the heat is turned up in their life, what happens? Many times those people turn away and they walk away. We are called to stand bold for the Lord and to live an uncompromising life of faith marked with convictions, courage, and commitment to Jesus Christ. Perhaps nowhere else in the Bible do we see this as vivid as we do in the illustration of the lives of the three guys I want to show you this morning. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You've heard of these guys, right? In Daniel chapter 3. I mean, in the example of these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we see three characteristics of faith that stands the test of fire. That is a faith that is real, a faith that is vibrant, a faith that impacts the, the, the society around it. You see it clearly with these guys. You know, their names weren't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Haniel, Mishael, and Azariah. That's their, that's their names that they had growing up as young men uh, in Israel before they were taken from their home in 605 BC by King Nebuchadnezzar in the first round of the exiles that were going on, right? And these guys were taken because they were the best and they were the brightest of Israel. Daniel chapter 1-4 describes them as this, youths in which there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had the ability for serving in the king's court. Nebuchadnezzar took these kids and he indoctrinated them in the Babylonian ways as best as he could. I mean, he taught them uh, their literature. He taught them their ways. He made them speak their language. He even tried to make them change their diet, right? He even changed their names to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But even through all of that, these guys can still stand as a marvelous example for us today of people who, whose faith could stand the test of fire, so I'd like to look at a great event from their lives and think about these three characteristics this morning. And I want to do that for a purpose, okay? It's not just to go back and say, wow, wasn't that a cool story? Wasn't that great? Weren't those guys something special? I want you to see not so much Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but I want you to see their God, right? And see, as you look at their God, the things that helped them to connect in such a way that they lived their lives as men who stood with great faith in the middle of an opportunity of great persecution. Three components, three characteristics. Number one, you've got this on your outline. Faith that stands the test of fire has convictions. We see that in verses 1 through 12 here. Uh, we live in a convictionless society pretty much, right? I mean, George Gallup, he did his, his little book. Uh, he polled 
people uh, the day America told the truth. And he, he asked him a question. He said, if I were to give you $10 million, what would you be willing to do for $10 million? And the, the results were, were somewhat amazing to me in the, in the sense that uh, people would give up just about anything for money. 25% of the people polled said they would abandon their families tomorrow for $10 million. 25%, one in four. 25% of them said they would abandon the church. That one's probably not as surprising to me as, as the other because a lot of churches, there's not a lot to them, right? 23%, almost one in four, would become a prostitute for one week for $10 million. And 7% said they'd be willing to kill somebody for $10 million. That's one in what, 14, 15? And if they took it down to 5 million, the results were the same. If they offered 3 million, the results were the same. You see, the deal was people had their idol of money and they were willing to, to put anything at the feet of it. Their families, their, their religion, even other people's lives. And we live in a society where everything is relative and anything is okay as long as you don't hurt anybody, right? And we kind of expect the world to be like that. But folks, this is not just the world. Many so-called Christians are, are indistinguishable on these items from non-Christians. Gallup found in that poll that people who attend church were who did that regularly were virtually as likely as non-Christians to behave unethically. Many are often convictionless. People ask the question, is it right or wrong according to the law? Is it right or wrong according to the people around me? Rather than is it right or wrong in God's eyes? That's a whole different question. Because of this, the church is, is, has a real problem because uh, our witness is virtually non-existent anymore because we're indistinguishable from the world around us. That is not God's design. That is not what it means to be a new creation. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, right? Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. We should be asking, what does God think about my life? What does God think about my decisions that I must make today? And how should I respond? You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not develop all of a sudden, when they were on the plain of Dura outside of Babylon in our story today, they didn't just all of a sudden develop integrity. You know, they, it was not a knee-jerk reaction, a spur-of-the-moment decision. You see, before the test comes, you must be prepared, right? If you went to school, before you took a test, you didn't just, most of the time, we had a few times we did this, didn't we? That's a place for an amen, where we go into the test and it was like, man, I didn't really prepare for this test. That's a good feeling, isn't it? And by, in, in life, by the grace of God, sometimes that even works in our Christian walk, although it's not the design. But the, the, the good plan is, before the test comes, you prepare. And that's what we see in the example of these three young men. Before they came there to their test, they had committed themselves to lining up with God's word without compromise. You see, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were deeply rooted in God's word. And I, let me suggest to you that I believe that's important for us as well. That we need to know the word of God. We need to be in the word of God, regularly uh, being saturated with the word of God so that we know what God has to say, what his truth is, right? And line ourselves up with that. 
So they knew the, the word of God. They knew things like Exodus 20, verses 3 and 4, where it says, you will have no other gods before me. You're not to make for yourself a, a carved image or the likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. They knew Psalm 31, 6. I've hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. So when they came to an opportunity to bow down to an idol, it was, it was a no-brainer. They knew what God had to say on this issue, right? Because they had been in the word of God. They were prepared. They, they didn't come to that moment, and in the heat of the moment, with all the pressure coming in on them, all of a sudden just try to figure out, I wonder what I should do in this. They knew. So they were rooted in God's word. Secondly, and we'll see this as, as we continue to look at the story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were committed to being obedient to God's word without wavering. It wasn't just that they knew the word, but they were committed to being obedient to the word of God. Nothing can weaken a man's conviction faster than sin in his life because it gives Satan a, a place to accuse him and it, it makes rationalization and, and compartmentalization and compromise easier. And people say things, well, just one more time, it won't hurt. Conversely, nothing can strengthen a man's conviction more than obedience. It gives God the opportunity to show himself faithful and makes standing firm easier because you've been there before and we've seen how God works through it. So let's look at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You got your Bibles open? Daniel chapter three. I'm reading now the New American Standard. And let's see how all this fleshes out in their lives. Verse one. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits and its width six cubits. And he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Okay, you know who Nebuchadnezzar is. You know about this guy. This guy was a powerful world leader, right? Okay, this guy was like the Michael Jordan uh, of, of world leaders. I mean, 40 years he ruled, and he, get this, he never once lost a battle. Never. 40 years. That's a pretty good record, wouldn't you say? And so he, he, it's him that's bringing this together. It's him that's making the demands. It's him that's going to have this event that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego need to go to. And what he's doing is he's setting up an image of gold in the middle of the desert on the plain of Dura near Babylon. You remember in Daniel chapter 2 that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, right? And I can imagine how this went for, for Nebuchadnezzar. Here's the dream. The dream's interpreted. You know, you remember uh, the feet are, are iron and clay and then the, all the way up iron and then getting more and more valuable until it got to the head and the head was gold, right? And remember the interpretation of the dream? Hey, by the way, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. And I can imagine Nebuchadnezzar with all this pride and all that kind of stuff going back and going, you know, <laughs> I'm the head of gold. Why not be the whole thing of gold? Well, let me make this statue. 60 cubits tall, that's 90 feet to you and me. Uh, must have not had any zoning out there. To give you a little comparison, this is something my neighbor would probably put in his yard. But to give you a little comparison, uh, the Statue of Liberty is 110 feet from hill to head, okay? Or 111 feet. So you get kind of the sense of scale here. He puts this monster thing up in the desert, six miles southeast of, of Babylonia, okay? Babylon, which is about 50 miles from modern-day Baghdad. So far, that's not a big deal. It really isn't. Pagans put up idols all the time. For Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, this is what you expect of the world, right? Verse two. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come up to the dedication of the image 
that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Now it's starting to get shaky because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you remember from Daniel chapter 2, are part of that group. And so they've got to come up because they're administrators over Babylon. But you know what? Just going is not a big deal. I mean, I can go to Utah and go to the Mormon tabernacle and and tour the, the church there, and it doesn't make me a Mormon, right? So maybe that's not a big deal. Verse 3. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So here it was, the A-list people, right? This is like Oscar night. All the beautiful people are gathered together here. In verse 4, a herald gets up. Look at it. The herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music. I'm not sure bagpipe's a good translation of the Aramaic there, by the way, unless there were some Scottish folk out there, but... (laughs) When you hear the music anyway, you're going to fall down and you're to worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But, and this is a big one here, whoever does not fall down and worship shall be immediately cast into the midst of a furnace, not just any furnace, but a furnace of blazing fire, which is really what a furnace should be, right? So the paid guy gets up, he, he makes the statement, he says, everybody, people, all nations, drums, tribes, all that kind of stuff, all you guys are going to come down here, and you have to fall down and worship. Now, we have the problem for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, because they know that their worship belongs only to one, right? To God, the Most High, to Yahweh. But whoever does not fall down and worship immediately, and I like to think that the furnace about that time goes, you know, with a little bit of extra flame just to make the emphasis, right? They'll immediately be throwing the fire furnace. So the plot thickens. Here's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're going, hey, I know my convictions, but what do I do? I mean, by the way, this king means this. Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 22, there's already a history where this guy has burned two guys to death already. Ahab and Zedekiah. So this is not like, oh, he doesn't really mean that. This is real. So the choice is at hand, and, and, and we find ourselves in choices that maybe don't seem that obvious to us at the time, but if we're walking by the grace of God and the Spirit, then we, we see that these things all the time in our life where we're being asked to compromise God's word, don't we? And the choice is the same for us, where we, we like them, they could have rationalized it, right? Just say, you know, Kind of like Naaman. Do you remember Naaman? Uh, healed of leprosy. We all know that part about Naaman, right? Uh, he, he, after declaring Yahweh as God, by the time you get to 2 Kings 5.18, he says this, in the matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. He's saying, will the Lord please forgive me? Because when my master goes up to the house of Rimmon to worship there and he leans on my hand and I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, that's a, an idol, right? When I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon me for that, please, because I'm going to be in there pretending to worship. So he could have rationalized it, right? Or or they could. The other option is is this. He could stand firm. That's the last one we try to go to sometime. You see, they knew Deuteronomy 4 says that our Lord, our God is a consuming fire, right? So which fire do you want to be facing? It's hard to go against the crowd, isn't it? 
I mean, does anybody struggle with that in here? I, I do sometimes, right? Everybody like you like to be liked. I like to be liked. But I'm telling you, folks, there are times that we need to stand out and be different, even if it costs us the, the admiration of others or whatever, right? A job, finances. We need to stand firm for the truth of God when the truth of God is, is, try, is being threatened to be compromised. We're calling us to that end. Because all the rest of that stuff changes. Friends come and go, jobs come and go. All that kind of stuff. But there is one true Lord, isn't there, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. I mean, I think about when I was a kid. I look around at kids. This, joke, this always cracks me up because now I'm an old man, right? Kind of old. And so I look around, and it's kind of like I'm, I'm hearing my dad in my ears when i you know, looking at maybe fashion or something like that. You know, remember that there was a little trend a few years ago where people wore their pants. Do you remember this? Backwards? That may have been before even some of you guys' time. They actually put their pants on. You know what I'm talking about? Backwards. Do you see people doing that anymore? Did you do that? I'm not, you don't have to answer that. This isn't a court of law. Yeah, yeah. My day, you know, we wore like leisure suits, puka shells, things like that. I don't know. Maybe that's all back now. I don't know. But anyway, those trends came and go, man. And I got pictures of me in eighth grade looking like the biggest geek on earth because of the way I was dressed, right? Because I caved to whatever the pressures were at the time. Now, that's a, a silly little thing. But when we come to the word of God and God who, who sent his son to save our souls says, this is the way that your life works best. I made you. I designed you. This is what it should look like. Is that a big deal? You bet it's a big deal. So we need to learn to stand firm. And that's what we find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look at verse 7 doing Therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshiped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Except for three, our text tells us. See, so imagine the picture. All these people gathered together in their most beautiful attire, in their offices, in their uniforms of state, And the music begins to play with this big gold statue gleaming in the desert sun. And when the orchestra begins to play, everybody, fine clothes and all, buries their collective faces in the dust to worship something somebody dug out of the ground and melted and shaped. And you can just imagine the whole group going out and the, just like a little collective dust pile going out from the, you know, a little from everybody, just the force of all the people going down. And then you stand back, and there's, there's two, four things standing up. You got a big gold statue in the front, and you got three men. Three guys. Three men who said, I will serve the Lord my God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. Three men, three godly men, three men who chose to glorify the Most High God rather than to protect their own necks. These were three men with convictions. And it just makes me cry out as I love the church and I love my God. To God, raise up more men like that, right? God, raise up more people who stand firm with convictions from the word of God. So, these guys don't bow down. They did the right thing. So everything is absolutely peachy keen for them now, right? Right, and that, you know, we learn that if we do what God says, it's always perfect, right? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? I hope you know the answer to that question, right? 
No, no, no. They teach that some of these places even nearby here, right? But that's not true. Sometimes it's in the, in the end, ultimately, is it Peachy King? You bet it is. But in this world, sometimes it's pretty rough when you follow Christ. That's what the Bible teaches. Biblically speaking, it's inevitable that a Christian will be tied, tried by fire. Inevitable. If you're a child of God, you will be thrust into the fiery furnace at some point. So get ready. Anybody here ever been in the fiery furnace? Just raise, you know what I'm talking about? Just a trial in life. Raise your hand if you ever had a trial. Seriously, raise your hand. I can stand here all day. All, that's all of you that have? All right. Let me tell you why, you're, why you can be afflicted. The Bible teaches several reasons. One of them is Satan afflicts us, right? First Peter 5.8. He is moving around like a roaring lion seeking those to devour. He's not happy if you're following Christ. He's going to do everything he can to disrupt that, right? He can't get your soul back, right? But he can try to disrupt it. Satan afflicts us. But not only Satan afflicts us, but the world torments us. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 uh, says this. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You want to go back and raise your hands again, some of you? No. You don't see that one crocheted on a pillow in somebody's house, right? We got <laughs> all who desire to live God. I got God works all things together for good for those who love him, those who are called according to purpose. Yeah. Not only does Satan afflict us, not only does the world torment us, but then here's the third one. This is the one that some people find very, very strange. God tries us too. God tests us. For, for discipline and for refining. Hebrews chapter 12, verses six through eight says, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he, get this, scourges, that's a strong word, by the way, every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure, for God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which you have all, again, become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So we will be tried by fire. And it's inevitable, and it's inevitable for, for several reasons because God, just as that, that passage in Hebrews 12 shows us, that he's fitting us for service, right? He's refining us. He's disciplining us. He's conforming us more and more to the image of his son. He's purifying us. You know, Paul, who wrote a great part of the New Testament, knew a little bit about troubles, knew a little bit about trials, and in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, he says this, not only this, but we exult in our tribulations. I mean, I'm fired up that I'm in a tribulation right now. That's a hard one, right? That's some Christian maturity there. Because I, I, face, I face tribulations, and I, it's hard for me to go, I, I really exult in that. And I have to come back around and remind myself of the great biblical overarching truths. So then I can start to rejoice because then he's, I understand he's maturing me and he's shaping me and molding me, see? But my first reaction is, oh no, why is this happening, you know? But Paul says, we exult in our tribulations knowing that tribulation, here's, here's why, again, it's his theology, isn't it? Tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance brings about proven character and proven character brings about hope. Do you want perseverance? Yes. Do you want proven character? You bet. Do you want to have a great hope? Absolutely. We exalt in our tribulations because that's part of what God uses to purify us and build those things up in us. Sometimes we're tried in order to be chastened, right? There are impurities in our life that need to be changed. There are things that do not reflect 
our Lord Jesus Christ, and so God works on us. But take joy in that as well. Because what kind of things, I mean, you think about it. If you were to go outside, and, and in the parking lot out there, you find two, two rocks. One of them is a diamond in the rough. One of them is a chunk of asphalt, right? Something torn up from the pavement. If you have any sense at all, and if you're going to take one of them and, and, and cut it and chisel it and form it and polish it and all that kind of stuff, which one are you going to take? The diamond in the rough. You never see anybody getting a piece of asphalt and going, oh, I'm going to make this, make a necklace out of it, a brooch or whatever, right? You just don't see that. Because God looks at you, he says, I've made him, he is mine, I see him for who he is, and he begins to work on us and shape us so that the world can see us for whom he has made us. We're also tried in order to separate believers from unbelievers or pretenders. And we see that in places like John 6. So let's continue. If we know we're going to be involved in trials, we really need to know God's word, remember, and we need to re- respond in obedience to what we find there. Verse 8. For this reason, at, the, at, at that time, certain Chaldeans, that's Babylonians again, came forward and brought charges against the Jews. Literally there in the Aramaic, it says, ate their pieces. They came up and just chewed them up, right? Uh, against the Jews. There's the anti-Semitism that you see all through the history of Israel. Verse 9, they responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, these are the guys coming in, right? And they're going to bring a charge against them. And so they say to Nebuchadnezzar, they enter into his courts, into his presence, and they go, uh, O king, live forever. Right? You can kind of see they're polishing him up already, right? Sweetly approaching the king. Verse 10, you, and in the Aramaic, it's emphatic there, like they're saying, you yourself, king. You yourself, O king, have made a decree. It's you that made it. That every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and to worship the golden image. Right, king? You remember you made that. But, and, and king, do you remember this part? But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of burning fire. Nebuchadnezzar nods. Yeah, I said that. Now, they, now they're turning on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There are, king, there are certain, this is verse 12, there are certain Jews, and you can almost hear the sneer in that, right? There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of, of Babylon, and then there you see a little bit of jealousy that's coming into this as well, kind of like Joseph's brothers towards Joseph and the prodigal son's brother towards the prodigal son when he returned to the laborers in the vineyard who got the same pay for a shorter amount. So it's kind of this, uh, you remember you, these guys who you put in this position, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these men, O king, and remember you're the king, they're not the king, they shouldn't be treating you this way. These men, O king, have disregarded, and he gets very personal here, have disregarded you. They, they do not serve uh, your gods or worship the golden image which you have made. Well, at this point, it seems like the health and wealth folks have misled us because things are getting rough for our boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and when we find ourselves in this position, when we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in this position, we don't get particularly nervous for them because we've heard the story since we were little kids, maybe. But in our own life, when we see ourselves in a similar situation, we, we start to almost question God if we're not careful and say things like, you know, I was faithful, God, I knew your word, and I didn't bow down. 
And God, I was obedient, I obeyed. I've seen you work in the past, God. Is everything okay? Are you there? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego find themselves accused and in a sticky situation because of their conviction. And when we began, I asked you if you want to have an impact on your generation. And this is really where the rubber hits the road. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had an impact. I mean, you remember their names, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And we go back to the story for times like this. How many other people at that meeting where they got together and bowed down, can you remember their names other than Nebuchadnezzar? The people who just said, you know, I'm going down. If you want to have an impact, then you have to have these kind of convictions, right? This is how God uses you to the max. So if you want to have a life with convictions, let me just give you a couple things here. Number one, prepare before the test comes, okay? Again, study the Word of God. Know the Word of God. You know when you're supposed to be dogmatic on something and when you're supposed to have grace in it. You know what I'm saying? Because some people just are dogmatic about everything, and they, they just, uh, we're going to take whatever I think the Bible says, I'm going to press it on you. And they know one verse over here that might sound like it says that, and they forget the verse over here that helps them to have the balance that the Lord directs there. Know when to, have, know when to be dogmatic. Know when to have standards. Know what his standards are. And you know what? That takes time, doesn't it? It takes time to be in the Word of God, and we're all busy, aren't we? We're running around and driving here and there, and we've got all our hobbies. And so we need to understand how can we determine what our time thieves are? How can we, we need to make time for this as a priority of life. And, and the time thieves that we're talking about may not be a bad thing. It may just be something where I have to adjust my schedule or get up a little earlier or not uh, play hoops with the boys on, on Saturday morning or something where I can get a little bit more time in the Word of God and learn how to choose between what's good and what's better and what's best. So we need to know the Word, but it's not just that. And you'll remember this from when we, at the beginning. Uh, we also have to obey the Word that we find there. Give God a chance to show you his faithfulness by following him, trusting in him to know what's best and not trusting in ourselves and elevating ourselves to the position of God and, and putting ourselves above God like we know best. No, God, I know you said that, but I've got to, I know this is really not going to work in this situation. Faith that stands the test of fire has convictions. Okay, that's first. Second, the second uh, truth about faith that stands stands the test of fire is that faith that stands the test of fire has confidence. We see that in verses 13 through 18. It has confidence. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego chose to stand firm and not rationalize because they had confidence in God. They had convictions because they knew God's word, and they had confidence because they knew God. You see? They knew his character, who he was, and that they could trust him. They knew his abilities. They knew his attributes through that time of study and time with him. They knew that God is holy and just. They knew that God is sovereign. They knew that God is faithful. They knew that God had shown himself faithful to them in previous situations. Chapter one with the food issue. Chapter two with the dream and interpretation. God has shown himself so very, very faithful. He knew that that was God's history of showing himself faithful. If you go back even to Moses coming out of Egypt, right? I mean, standing at the Red Sea with the water in front of him and the somebody, something, you know, the chariots coming from behind, Right? And the people of Israel are going, oh, what do we do now? You know, we don't know what to do. Let's go back, leeks and onions, right? 
We want to go back to it. That was so fun in Egypt. And Moses just said to the people, he said, don't fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. Check this out. Look at that. Let's, see how, let's see our mighty God work in a hard situation, shall we? The Egyptians whom you have seen today, you'll never see them again, forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Those are beautiful words. Let's look at that and see that fleshed out here with our guys. Verse 13. The Nebuchadnezzar in rage and anger, and in the Aramaic there, it's really intense, okay? Uh, By the way, this is a little section of the Old Testament that's in Aramaic from chapter 2, verse 5, all the way to the end of chapter 8, or chapter 7. And and so it's it's kind of an interesting little switch that goes on here. But the idea there is it's very, very intense the way Nebuchadnezzar's treating him right now. He is absolutely out of his mind angry. So he gives orders to bring, verse 13, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these men were brought before the king. Verse 14, Nebuchadnezzar responded to them and said, is this true? It's kind of the, the inference there, the structure syntactically is, can this really be true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Is, can this be true uh, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I've set up? I mean, it's hard to, for me to believe, Nebuchadnezzar's inferring here, that three exiles, which I've been so gracious to and given them so much and brought them into positions of power, could do this to me. What are you guys thinking? So it's really, surely this is some sort of mistake. Verse 15. Now, if you're ready, which I'm sure you are at this point, right? Must have been a miscommunication. Now, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the heart or the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, fall down and worship the image that I made. If you're ready, very well. But in the case that it wasn't a miscommunication, If you do not worship, you will immediately be thrown into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Nebuchadnezzar gives them, the battle line's drawn, right? Turn or burn, right? And then he ratches it up one more notch there at the end of verse 15. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands. Ooh. At this point, we have a problem. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, verse 16, replied to the king and note their response. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. Three young guys in the presence of the most powerful king, and what do they do? They lean on the most high God. There is no fear of man here. I love that. It makes me think of Matthew 10, verse 28, where it says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul. You remember that? This is where these guys are coming from. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had no reason to refute the charges. You know why? They were true. There's no argument to be made here. And they just stood on Psalm 38, verse 15. You will answer, O Lord. Look at their response, verse 17. If it be so... Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he'll deliver us out of your hand, O king. <laughs> now, now, notice what they've, what they've just said, the theology of it. They could be confident because they understood God's ability, right? They understood that God is omnipotent, right? He is all-powerful. He made the fire. Guess what? He could unmake it, right? If you're Shadrach, Meshach, could he just do that if he wanted to, right? Throw him in the furnace instead of it being like burning, searing heat. 
He could just turn into like air conditioning. God could do that, right? He could change the molecular structure. It doesn't matter. He could do anything he wants. Why? Because he's God. God's ability here with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is never, ever in question. We don't see him going, let's call everybody together and have a vigil, a miracle vigil or something so that maybe something will happen and he'll change his mind. It's not that at all. They, they just said, you know what? Our God is able. He, he, they're, they're talking like Ephesians 3.20. You know, he's able to do exceeding abundant beyond all that we can ask or think. And so if he chooses to do that, which he can, that's great. And we'll trust him to make the, that decision. Verse 18. Oh, and I love this part. But... And when you see that word in Scripture, let your little ears perk up, right? Because the hinge is turning on the door, right? It's swinging from one way to... But even if he does not, that is, even if he does not exercise his ability to do that, let it be known to you, O king. And I don't think they're being disrespectful there. They're just being straightforward. It's confidence. Let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods, or worship the golden image that you set up. How did they have such confidence to, to, to go but? You know what I mean? Confidence in the ability, that's one thing. God's able to deliver us, right? But the confidence that says even if he doesn't want to deliver us for whatever reason, I'm still standing in confidence. How do they have that confidence? And it's here that the rubber hits the road because when you're in the middle of your test, when you're in the middle of your trial, when you're in the middle of the trouble and tribulations that you face in this life, you don't know how it's going to end up at that time, right? And so we need to have confidence for the either-or situation that God may be choosing to do to bring greater glory to his name. It's quite easy to be a Christian in perfect conditions. It's the but-if-nots of life that separate the wheat and the tares, I'm praying that my cancer goes away. Oh, the cancer went away. Praise God, he is able. The cancer didn't go away. Praise God, he's doing something else through it. Right? Do you remember the adversary's question of Job? Of God about Job, I should say? He says, is Job just, everything's great in Job's life. Does he just serve you because it's great? And God allowed him to go after Job pretty hard, didn't he? And he continued to serve him. You know, there are times when the sovereignty of God is perplexing from a human standpoint. I mean, uh, there are times when God spares one and doesn't spare another. In Jeremiah chapter 26, it's a great chapter for that. You ought to read it sometime. Jeremiah was spared death while a guy by the name of Uriah, who is described there as a man who spoke words like Jeremiah, so he's not like a different character or quality or anything like that, he was, he was killed. You can see it in the New Testament as well. In Acts chapter 12, we find Peter. The gates are being swung open. Angels are escorting him out, all this kind of stuff, right? What about James? Right there, near, near context, boom, his head comes off. Why does God save some and not save others? This is God's providence, right? Why does God allow an innocent baby to die and a murderer to go free sometimes in the short haul? There's really no answer for that except for, you know what? God is sovereign, and he knows what he's doing, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here understand that, and they're prepared in the realization that God's plan could be different than, get this, their desire. 
How do you feel about that one? Are you okay if, if God's plan is different from your desire? You see, it's at those points that you're exhibiting a full trust in God that his plan is better than my plan. And like Job, though he slay me, yet I will, right? I'll stand, I'll stay, I'll, be, I'll, I'll put my faith in him. I'll trust him. That's true faith. And one thing we need to learn, especially here in America, I think, is, is it's not ultimately about us. God uses these things to better us, but it is ultimately about him to show his glory. So we stand on biblical convictions with confidence, knowing God is working to glorify his name, which is really the true believer's goal. Number three. Faith that stands the test of fire is committed. We see that in the verses 19 and following. It doesn't just have convictions. It doesn't just have confidence, but it's also committed. Sadrach, Meshach knew the word of God, which built convictions. They knew God, which gave them courageous confidence. And they knew God had a plan, and they trusted him to do what was best in his perfect plan, which enabled them to be committed no matter what. And you see this all through the word of God, don't you? It's modeled by guys like Job, though he slay me, I mentioned earlier, or Jesus, not my will, but yours. And the ultimate question comes down for you and I is, would we follow God's plan for our life if it doesn't match up with our plan for our life? Verse 19. Nebuchadnezzar, after hearing their answer, was filled with wrath. His facial expression was altered toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is not a good thing for them. He's the most powerful guy in the world, and he's vicious right now. And and a man with no power who's in a full rage, that's a scary thing. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Even a little guy or whatever that's just absolutely just enraged, they can do a lot of damage. But here you have a man with all the power at his fingertips, worldly speaking. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. And he got the furnace superheated to match his own heat. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Now, the furnace is a little bit like a Coke bottle shape, okay? Most people believe it's kind of a a cylinder that narrows and has a place where you put things in at the top, you know, to feed the fire, to put the gold above it, that kind of stuff to... To, to take the dross off, all that kind of stuff. So there'd be a ramp kind of built up to this thing. And this is the picture of what's going on here. So these guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and their other clothes, and were cast in the middle of the, fa- the furnace of blazing fire. And for this reason, because the king's command was so urgent, and the furnace had been made so hot, the flame of the fi- fire slew those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. Okay, so this is how hot it is that the guys who are kind of pushing them up the, the ramp, so to speak, and push them in, those guys get consumed by the fire. This is real fire, right? But, there's that word again, verse 23. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. They went in the top, right? Fell in two. And they were still tied up. In other words, the trousers, all that stuff wouldn't burn off. At this point, Nebuchadnezzar gets a little awakening, so to speak. Verse 24. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded. He notices something very different happening. And he stands up in haste, and he said to his higher officials, Was it not three men we cast bound in the midst of the fire? They replied, Certainly, okay. He says, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. By the way, I love this, and there's so much tied up in this, but think about this. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not delivered from the fiery furnace, right? They were delivered through the fiery furnace. You see what I'm saying? They still went through the trial, but God was there with them, the fourth, like the Son of God, which is a Christophany. Most theologians believe the pre-incarnate Christ. And here he is. Here's God providing comfort in the time of afflictions. And, I, and this is so, so wonderful to my own heart. Because as Christians, as I said, we are often afflicted, but we're not alone in those afflictions, right? Isn't that beautiful? God's promise, I will be with you, is a real promise from a God who cannot lie. And we see him making that promise time and time again. Moses at the burning bush, I don't know how I'm going to do this, Lord, I stutter, you know, how are you going to have me do this? He's like, I'll be with you. I made your mouth. Isaiah 43, when Israel's in the midst of their affliction, he says, you know what? When you pass through the waters, I'm going to be with you. The rivers will never overtake you because what? I'm going to be with you. He even says, when you go through the fire, you'll not be scorched, nor will you be burned. Because I'm with you. Psalm 23, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he's with us, right? Isn't that great? Matthew 28, verse 20, believers are told throughout their entire ministry as you go to bring the gospel to a lost and dying world and make disciples. Hey, guess what? The God of all power says, I'll be with you. What a comfort this is to you and I as it was to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Look at verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the furnace of blazing fire and he responded and said, and notice change of attitude here. He says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God. Not, what God is there anymore that can deliver you? Come on out, servants of the Most High God. And come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire, check this out, had had no effect on the bodies of the men, zero effect. Their hair of their head was not even singed. Their trousers were not damaged. They didn't even have the smell of fire upon them. Not even the smell. I love these guys. You know, at the plane, they didn't kneel. When they faced the pressure, they didn't reel. And even when you put them in the fire, they didn't grill. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue, does that sound familiar, that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap. Literally in Aramaic, it's a public toilet, a dung heap. He's still got a little of the old self sitting there, doesn't he? Inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. 
Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the land of Babylon. I love a happy ending. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would never have been able to make it without God stepping in, right? Without God delivering them from that fiery furnace. They weren't, al- uh, they weren't alone in that fiery furnace. They had a, a, a redeemer, a, a deliverer who was there, the one that Job waited for, saying, I know that my redeemer lives. And it's just, I'm just waiting. You know, that is the same thing that the people in Garden Grove and L.A. and around the world need, isn't it? A redeemer, a deliverer. Yeah, that's what the beauty of the gospel is, isn't it, right? The gospel has come as a word of God to change lives, to, to redeem us from lost and dying to inheritors of the kingdom of God. How cool is that? I mean, you talk about extremes. This is much bigger. This is a much bigger deliverance. And I know that word's kind of ruined nowadays, isn't it? But anyway, it's a much bigger deliverance than, than uh, being delivered from a fiery furnace from a wretched sinner who can only sin, a slave to sin, to a slave of righteousness. That's what the cross is about, right? Isn't that what Jesus came to do? He came to glorify the Father, and and because of his great love with which he loved us, he paid the price for our penalty of sin so that we could be restored to a right relationship with him, so that we could become those new creatures, and so that we could carry out a mission that he has for us. Isn't that cool? that, folks, is what we need to be doing, right? When you walk out of here, when you've been in here for the huddle, right? We come in here, it's like, all right, here's the play. Let's go back out. You you go out there, and it's like, who do you work with? Who lives in your neighborhood? Who do you know? Are you talking to them about Jesus Christ? Are you bearing testimony of what he's done in your own life? Are you showing them that there's only one way, one truth, and one life, and nobody comes to the Father but through him? Is that what we're doing? Are are we so scared uh, of the Nebuchadnezzars out there that we're afraid to do that because what if they don't like me anymore? What if they don't invite me to the, the barbecue? Or what if I lose my job? Or what if I don't get that raise? <coughs> that's, that's pretty wimpy Christianity, isn't it? When, when God Almighty has given you a mission and he says, hey, I want you to go and make disciples, period. That's it, right? I want you to go and be about this as you are going. What does that look like in your life today? Who do you know that if it all came to the end right now would perish in eternity forever? And do you care? And do you care for that opportunity to be the one that makes an impact for the kingdom of God on behalf of the great the one who sends us as ambassadors? It's really easy to go through the week and not even think about that kind of stuff if you're not careful. To look at that guy at the next cubicle and go, you know what? He hates God. There's no way. I know so-and-so tried to witness to him one time. There's no hope there. And write him off. God's able. Right? Our God, right? The Ephesians 3.20 again. He's able to do exceeding, abundant, beyond all that you can ask or think, right? And if not, hey, we're still going to follow him. We're still going to serve him. We're still going to do what he's calling us to do, amen? That's the calling. How cool is that? To have God Almighty, right? To have been bought by him and to be used by him for his purposes. 
I mean, if the president of the country called you up and said, you know, I'd like you to quit your job and come here to Washington, D.C. and work on my behalf and, and, and bring this uh, message of good news to people, what would you do? You wouldn't even think twice, would you? Probably. We'll do that for an earthly leader, maybe. What about a king of, the king of kings and the Lord of lords who has said, I've saved you, bought you with a precious price of the blood of my son Jesus Christ, now go be about it. You know what? You'd be, you, you wouldn't be able to stay in this room if, if we were all doing that, right? You'd be packed to the gills. Our God is able. Our God is a deliverer. And you and I, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're on mission. You're not in Venezuela mission, right? You're in America mission. Can you dig that? How cool is that? It's not just the pastor who wears, the only one has to wear a suit, right? It's not just him. It's not just the guy that you sent off to some foreign land. You know what? It's you guys. It's every believer is called for this. And if we just have pastors doing this, sitting in pulpits and room full of people who already agree, you know, we're not going to be near as effective. But if we go out from this huddle and go out into all the different places that you work and live around this area, it's no limit to what God can do. That's fun. That's exciting. And that, my friends, is the kind of life that has an impact. So, back to their origins. Do you want to have an impact? We serve a mighty God who is able to deliver. Will you follow him and just do what he says? Because you love him. Because you want to, not out of Pastor Dave's guilt trip sermon or something like that, right? Just because you love him. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful to you this morning as we've looked at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and just the, the power that you've shown uh, in delivering them from a fiery furnace, Lord, but we are reminded that the power that you show in delivering each one of us from the fires of damnation is much greater. And so, Father, I pray that, that each one of us here would, would stand and measure up to what we've looked at in these men's these men lives, that our, that our faith would have convictions, <coughs> that we wouldn't bend under the slightest pressure, that we'd be confident in our Creator, confident even when things look like we're going against some terrible odds. And Lord, that we would be committed to you for whatever plans you have for us, if it's missions, ministry, a fiery furnace, martyrdom, anything you want, Father. Lord, I pray that if there are those here who don't know you in the, the way that I've described, that they don't have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, Lord, that even today you would quicken them, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would realize their sin and, and need of a Savior. And Father, that by your grace they could be saved and have a life that impacts the world around them. Lord, we pray this in your Son's name and by your grace. Amen.